I'm Dave Baker. And I'm Shaggy Tado. Welcome to Deep Cuts, the podcast where we pick a topic and walk you through the ins, the outs, and the nitty gritty. So you can appear like an interesting and idiosyncratic person at your next forced social function. Today's topic is... Oh, I forgot. <laughs> Hold on, I'm going to do that. <laughs> I, I literally blanked on the, what we were doing for a second. Lisa Frank. Who is Lisa Frank? She's a children's back-to-school product mogul who virtually transformed the paper and pens industry overnight. She's a staple of pop culture in a way that very few non-performing artists actually achieve. Unfortunately, though, her fortune and success over the course of her nearly five decades in existence as a company has a dark underbelly. Despite her rainbow-adorned public identity, the woman in question is a secret recluse, only having given a handful of interviews in her time in the public eye. And to compound matters, her legacy is constantly dogged by whispers of drug abuse, infidelity, eating disorders, and corporate power struggles. Act 1. In the desert, no one can hear you abuse your employees. The artistic process is an unknowable and eternally vexing one. There's an inherently Sisyphean patina to the entire endeavor. Most creators are attempting to get something out of themselves that they wish they could see in the world. But as they excise this demon or vision, they're unable to truly appreciate it as they are the creator. The creative catharsis that they experience for fits and starts during this process pales in comparison to the general public's ability to enjoy the given piece of work. There's a subconscious anger and frustration that every artist feels. I just wish that I could experience this thing in the way that people who aren't me experience this thing. In that sense, all art is suffering, but that's a glib reduction. Are all artistic pursuits inherently rooted in suffering? Or more specifically, is internal artistic suffering equivalent to external enjoyment? Undoubtedly, that's a falsely perpetuated myth propagated by our culture for sure. The myth of the tortured artist. The emphasis we place on people who struggle and strive against all odds to produce their given work. Is this axiom just our culture's over-romanticization of craft? based on very little understanding of what it takes to become a successful artist? Oh, you're so talented! You're just so gifted! Wow, you're really lucky to be able to create artwork like that! Chime a throng of aunts and uncles and romantic partners that, through no fault of their own, think that artists are just born being able to create, unaware of how deeply insulting and ignorant these statements are. You're really working through some demons there, buddy. It's, I hate it so much. I hate it so much. For real though, like for real, I, I, I find it repugnant every time someone says, oh, wow, you're so talented. No, motherfucker, I'm skilled because I've spent 30 fucking years at this table breaking myself. I didn't just wake up and know how to do this. I love it. People say that go to me. Your, go I'm... fuck yourself. Go fuck, go, just go fuck yourself. I quit. On one existential level, all art is suffering. Craft is not gained overnight. It's self-deprivation, it's hours of time, it's years in the making. 
No one just wakes up and knows how to play guitar. You have to build up that skill, develop calluses, hone your internal sense of taste, and build a girded creative lattice that will allow you to construct your work. The same can be said for any artistic pursuit. The individual must devote themselves to the craft of making. Is this devotion inherent suffering? No. Some people find it definitively pleasurable, but that doesn't mean that it's not hard. And that doesn't mean that depriving oneself of experience in pursuit of an artistic goal isn't a specific type of suffering. However, the subject of today's episode might have internalized the idea that suffering makes better art a little too literally. The woman who would be globally recognized as Lisa Frank was born in 1972 in Bloomfield Hills, Michigan. She attended Cranbrook Kingswood. Oh my God. That is the whitest sounding school. I was going to say it sounds it sounds like a made up fictional school from like a magical puppy world. Like it sounds like a school from the Lisa Frank universe. Yeah. She attended Cranbrook Kingswood High School before moving to Tucson for college, attending the University of Arizona. While in school, she began selling pottery, which she would purchase in Michigan and then transport to Tucson and then resell. Eventually, this turned into her first company, a jewelry company named Sticky Fingers. No relation to the rapper who would go on to play Blade in the Spike TV channel Blade television show. Then, Lisa Frank had a realization. If she painted on the used pottery, she could upcharge. People were willing to pay sometimes two times, three times the value for a product with an image on it. She began doing this, and then things started to heat up for her, and then she couldn't keep up with demand. So she started hiring other people to paint on the pottery. Let's unpack this for a second, because this part is really mystifying to me. Coming off of this whole discussion of craft, Lisa Frank as we kind of know and understand it, is this brand of school supplies and other childhood knickknacks or whatever you would call them that all have this artwork on them. And the artwork all has a very specific style, obviously. And it's this very overly rendered, colorful, detailed, lush artwork of cute animals and rainbow patterns and stars and really convoluted geometric shapes and things. Looking at it is very nostalgic because it reminds me of a time, but it's not particularly my idea of something that I'm into. But that being said, it is it's like I said, it's very detailed and meticulously rendered. And there's some serious skill behind this artwork. This is not the typical origin story that you see from something like this. It's not like, oh, this this young artist was you know, hold away in her room, doodling all day. And eventually she started painting and then people noticed the paintings and then she got notoriety and then she parlayed it into this huge brand or whatever. It starts from like almost like a grift where she was like buying pottery and then like reselling it at an, with an, at an upcharge in a different state. And then it, it eventually it was like the whole artwork aspect of it all literally came from her being like, if I put pictures on it, I can sell it for more money. And that's where this whole thing came from. That's very fascinating to me because that's just not a typical thing you see from something like this that's tied to like a um, like an auteur artist like this. Yeah, I mean, we're going to talk more about this later, but that auteur artist persona. That shit's kayfabe. Full four-star kayfabe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That shit is... Totally kayfabe. Yeah. I mean, I wonder, is there even any proof that she does this artwork? No, she doesn't, dude. She she doesn't. She, per, she definitely doesn't do the artwork herself. 
Not anymore. She may have in the beginning. Well, but no, she well definitely not anymore. But I mean, did she ever? I like. Is there proof that she ever did this artwork? I don't know. Because that's the thing. Because I, t- I, I couldn't find anything about. I never saw anybody really unpacking that and and actually talking about whether or not she did the artwork. There's obviously no footage of her doing the artwork. There's like three videos in existence of her that we'll talk about later. And yeah, as far as I could tell, there's no actual proof that she ever did this artwork. Yeah. Around this time, Lisa Frank develops a little factory-like assembly system. Things are going pretty well from the little girl from Michigan. She incorporates around 1979 as Lisa Frank Inc. The company initially gets into stickers, loads of them. They took the artwork and sold it as sticker sheets throughout the 80s. It was a massive boom. The company started to make money hand over fist. And then, to compress some time, they had a downturn. The stickers, they fell out of fashion. So, what did Lisa Frank do? That's the most adorable bubble burst of all time. <laughs> yeah. The sticker sheet market crashed. Aww. Aww. She learned from the lessons of her past. She realized that she could pivot into the school supply business and put stickers on them, marking the products up four or five times in value. The pottery business model. But aimed at little girls. And the craziest thing about this is... It worked. This strategy worked like gangbusters for Lisa Frank Incorporated. Before she knew it, Lisa Frank was locking down the little girl demographic. For good, basically. What was it about 90s kids that just wanted as many folders as possible? Bro, you gotta have folders, bro. Is that that's not a thing anymore? Well, yeah, paper doesn't exist. Why did we want so many folders? Because we had paper back then. We don't have paper now. Just like we had, you know vaguely passed for democracy back then this is we're recording this in the future of you know uh it's not a utopia or a dystopia it's a full-on verhoeven toupee and we don't have things like government anymore it's just anarchy in the streets but without even being anarchy it's just militias wandering around murdering each other in in the full verhoeven toupee of our future hybrid between a consumer utopia and a cultural and societal dystopia. There's militia roaming the streets, diseases ravaging us, killing thousands, and no colorful Spider-Man folders. You know what she could do, though? If she sold plague bottles, they're like little like water bottles, but with coronavirus in them. Dave, masks. Lisa Frank masks. Yeah, Lisa Frank masks. Let's stop this recording right now and get Lisa Frank on the phone. We're going to be fucking millionaires. <laughs> Around this time, Lisa Frank opens a retail space in Tucson Mall and then a manufacturing hub. And she starts shipping product all over the world. Before we go any further, I need to talk about the Tucson Mall and Lisa Frank's retail shop in there. So I am originally from Tucson. Tucson Mall is... Uh, there's three malls in Tucson, Foothills, Elkhorn, and Tucson Mall. Tucson Mall is kind of the biggest of them. Um, and I went to Lisa Frank's retail store a lot as a kid because my sisters, obviously, being girls in the 90s, loved Worked Lisa at Lisa so we went- Frank because they didn't <laughs> adhere labor. to the child labor laws. They just yeah. employed exclusively seven-year-olds. So we went there a lot as a, as a, I went there a lot as a kid. And one of my earliest memories that's just like blazed into my head 
is we were in the store and my mom was like, hey, you know, you guys all can pick out something for $5 each or whatever, you know, just, you know, like a piece of stationery, whatever, you know, teaching little kids how money works, right? So I don't remember what I picked out. I picked out some stupid pen or something and my uh, middle sister picked out something. I don't remember what she picked out, but it was both of our things were less than $5. And then my youngest sister came up with a a notepad that was $10. And my mom was like, oh, no, you know, that's actually above the price limit. Like that's that's $10. You need to get something that's $5. And my sister looked at her with just like hatred in her eyes. And she was like, no, but I but I want this. And then my dad came over and he was kind of like, yeah, you know, uh, you know, the money costs certain things and, and we've given you $5. So, you know, pick out something that's $5 and then maybe next time we'll get something that's 10. But this time we're doing $5. And my sister starts screaming, you're not my parents. You're not my dad. You're not my dad. Like screaming. And I was like, oh my God, what is happening? Oh my God, what is happening? And so my mom is like, I'm going to go get the car. I'm going to pull it around right to the exit. Stay here with your dad. And I'm going to go get the car and then we're going to leave. And I was like, I, I don't want to stay here. Are you kidding me? She's like screaming. I don't want to be here. And my mom was like, no, you, you have to stay here. Because if you don't, people are not going to know that he actually is your dad. Yeah, that's like they're my- going to think he kidnapped <laughs> Yeah, you're gonna think you kidnapped her. That's a genuine like, nightmare. That's the thing that you you got on your mind when when you're a dad, you're walking around, you don't have, you know, your your wife's not around, you're just like, oh, I don't know, no, I don't want any. Please, nobody think I'm like kidnapping these kids or something like that. Like, and you start people are looking at you, and you're like, you're feeling their judgmental eyes on you, and you're just like, I have their birth certificates. <laughs> yeah. So long story short, we ended up getting out of there, but. Yeah, that that was Lisa Frank is just seared into my brain. Like I can picture what the inside of that store looked like to this day because I was so just like, what? Like that is not something I would do. I would never in a million years scream, you're not my dad. I would have never done that. I think your sister was Macaulay Culkin from The Good Son. Pretty much. Yeah, pretty much. So I I bring that up only because because one, uh, if she listens to this, I want to embarrass her. And two. And also, this is the power of, of the of the Frank. Yeah. Let's have a Frank discussion. Let me be Frank. Lisa Frank turned children into shark eyed sociopaths <laughs> yeah. who would Pretty sell their own much. parents down the river to CPS for a notebook with a dolphin on it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, pretty much. Lisa Frank Incorporated goes on to become so monumentally successful that she's able to literally change the name of the street for her business address. The warehouse for LFI was originally located on Masterson Avenue, which she changed in 1997 to Lisa Frank Avenue. Which was actually the street that you lived on as a child. It was, yes. Um, I have been to that warehouse before. I may or may not have been responsible for starting a bonfire on the premises, but... That's not necessarily something we need to discuss. Wait a minute. So in, that part at the end of the episode, whenever all of the Lisa Frank employees die in a fire at the warehouse that we're leading up to. 
Yeah, that was me. That was my fault. Yeah. In 1998, Lisa Frank took part in a CNN piece, one of the few times she's actually appeared on camera publicly. You are looking at the future of retail. <laughs> and it can barely see over the counter. She may not always have complete control of her things or hold them in the most traditional fashion, but do not underestimate the buying power of a little girl. Last year, they spent $15 billion of their own money, and they're spending and influencing another 165 from their parents. Staggering figures, particularly if you are the Tucson, Arizona-based Lisa Frank Company. It pulls in $250 million a year, catering exclusively... That is so much money. That is so much money. 20 years ago, two struggling artists, Lisa Frank and James Green, joined forces and started a sticker company. They sold their colorful concoctions to small stores all across the United States. But just when they were on the verge of striking it rich, the popular sticker market came unglued. We had like millions of, you know, units of stickers. And when the bottom falls out of the industry, what are you going to do with all the goods? <laughs> Look so at what she's wearing. packaging the stuff <laughs> for mass market. A lot comes from going to the zoo or just, you know, art museums, reading magazines from everywhere. Uh, the kids maybe give you an idea. By kids, I mean early 20-year-olds. And by give me an idea, I mean do the work. I mean, our reject pile, people think are good goods. I mean, even sometimes I get confused. I mean, those look pretty good. What's wrong with them? Such scrutiny has meant few recent missteps. At this point, we don't have too many dogs because, oh boy, when you get a dog, you get a dog. But we don't have too many because I'm much more um, focused and, you know, calculated about what we come out with because it's like, you know, in the early days, we just came out with, it was kind of like a, you come out with 20 things and hope five sell. Today, you can't afford to do that. If you come out with 20 things, you better hope 19 sell. Because <laughs> you know? no one remembers your successes. Everybody remembers your dogs. <laughs> Boy, when you have a dog, you really have a dog. That character voice is so weird. Why would you choose that to be your fucking character voice? That's not her voice. I don't know, that's man. Ju that's just not her voice. Like that's a character. That's she's she's full Blastoise, <laughs> dude. For real, we have a photo of a woman, which is one of the few photos of Lisa Frank <clears throat> that's known to exist. Mister Price, could you please describe this woman? I have two words for you, Dave. Mm -hmm. Cocaine ant. <laughs> yeah, she looks like Jackie O. If Jackie O got real excited about some uh, some cocaine. She looks like Jackie O if the unpaid interns that Lisa Frank employs drew her. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. She's smiling from ear to ear. Her eyes are... They take up a large percentage of her face. She also has a very large chin. So she kind of has this almost cartoonish look to her. And she has big 80s hair in the photo. I mean, she's a very... She's a very uh, uh, I, I almost said well-proportioned. That makes it seem like I'm commenting on her body. I don't mean that. I mean, like, her face facial features are very evenly distributed. She looks like a rainbow crashed into Kyle McLaughlin in a wig. <laughs> oh, my God. That's so on point. Yes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> that's one damn fine mirror of cocaine. Yeah, it is. 
<laughs> it's like if Kyle McLaughlin was doing cocaine off of a mirror and headbutted it and then went through the mirror into a world where he was a Tucson, Arizona residential Cruella DeVille. <laughs> Negadeville. Negadeville. Kyle ne- Kyle ne- DeVille. Yeah, I mean, this is one of the very few photos of, of Lisa Frank that exists. Today, when you, when you do a Google search, a, a photo of what one would presume is modern day Lisa Frank, you know, a 60-something-year-old woman pops up. Andrew, could you describe this photo? I've got four words for you, Dave. Earl Grey math professor. Mm-hmm. Very, very on point. She's wearing a um, somewhat bohemian neckerchief scarf thing. Um she uh, is wearing some sort of large kind of art director jacket um, and, uh, you know, appears to be a somewhat nice woman. Um, she looks like Linda Ellerby met Linda Ellerby and they both nodded at each other and decided amicably to have a child together. <laughs> She's like if Catherine Keener got cast in a... I, Tanya style Lisa Frank biopic about Lisa Frank's later years living in exile. She's like if Lisa Frank actually tried to draw something. <laughs> and this is where there's a bit of a twist, my boy. The second photo is not Lisa Frank. This is Lisa A. Frank, who's an artist, and she makes uh, kind of shitty paintings. Honestly, this could very well be the actual Lisa Frank, and she's just reinvented herself as a really bad gallery fine art painter. But if that's the case, you'd think that she would have picked a better pseudonym. <laughs> yeah, it's just like, I'll put the A in there and nobody will know. The rosy exterior depicted in this CNN piece was far from the truth, however. Dark rumors and reports of abusive and horrible working environments permeated any conversation that was had about Lisa Frank Incorporated. You could just tell from those videos, too, just the... The, when they when they had the shots of just the office and them walking around, the vibe in there, it was just, it was completely like when these cameras leave, shit's going to get tense again. Anybody who's that upbeat and like trying to be peppy, you know, as soon as the camera's off, they're just yelling at somebody. They're just screaming at somebody. It's a lot, a lot of shit talk that goes on in, uh, in broom closets in that office. To make things so bizarre, it was said that the woman was so obsessed with bringing joy and color to the world, young girls had dark obsessions and mental disorders. Reports of Frank showing up to the office rail thin, never eating, and constantly being obsessed with how she was perceived spawned the near truth that she was afflicted by an eating disorder. Her perfectionist tendencies and obsession with artifice only spawned more evidence to the previous claims. She was a purveyor of beauty, regardless if it was within the products she produced or displayed on the canvas of the self. She only cared about one thing, perfection. This would ultimately cause her to withdraw from public life, to seek the solace of the shadows, and to refuse to have her face publicly photographed. I grow tired of these dolphins. I'm tired of being caught in the tangle of their glitter sparkle rainbows. <laughs> <laughs> It would also <laughs> it would also lead her down a path that would result in her marrying one of her employees, a man named James Green. Do 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 demon humming songs that he only knows from his planet that 
or humans don't recognize. Oh, hey, Dave. Uh, do you by any chance happen to have any more of those, uh, pixie box book things that you make or whatever? Hey, Hillsmer, uh, you mean comics? Yeah, yeah, something like that. Uh, well, I don't have any with me right now, but I do have two new comic book series that are starting up. Uh, I wrote a Star Trek series, Star Trek Voyager 7's Reckoning, which comes out November 11th. And the way the comic book industry works is that you have to pre-order comics in order to make sure that the stores order enough. If you wanted to pre-order it, you would go to a comic book store or go online and use the code SEP200455. I also have a creator-owned series coming out November 25th called Night Hunters with artist Alexis Zirit, which is about two brothers in Grand Caracas, 100 years in the future, one of which becomes a cop, one of which becomes a drug dealer, and they have to fight their way through the seedy underbelly of the dystopian Venezuelan police state, which you could pre-order with the code SEP201264. Yeah, 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 yeah. Great, 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 great. Cool, cool, cool. That uh, sounds amazing. Love it. Love everything that every word that you just said. Uh, I'll take whatever fifty. Really? Wow! I didn't know. Uh, I didn't know you read comics, Hilsmer. Oh, you're supposed to read them. There's a thing about space demons where when it's the summertime, we actually get very cold instead of hot. So I was actually just looking for some kind of kindling for the fire in the living room. Oh, that explains what that bonfire was. That was a sex thing. Act 2. The heat isn't so bad in Tucson. It's the sun that'll get you. Let's return to 1982 or 1983. Lisa Frank hires a man named James A. Green to be a designer at her company. He's a bright man. He has a laconic smile. He's something of a smooth operator. He knows how to get people to do what he wants. But it's not all sunshine and rainbows for Mr. Green. He has a dark side too. A temper. And when it flares up, beware. Anyone in his immediate vicinity is in for it. Also, in that news packet, they retconned it to be like that they started the company together. Yup, which they didn't. This cocaine-fueled auntie fucked her right-hand man, and now they have an empire together. (laughs) For Lisa, though, this wasn't a red flag. If anything, she was probably drawn to him even more because of it. She, too, had a temper and they began working closely together on a series of projects during the beginning of 1982. And sooner rather than later, they began dating. Yes, that's right. Lisa Frank became romantically involved with one of her employees, James A. Green. And in 1984, Frank and Green wed. Rumors of cocaine abuse, screaming tantrums at employees, and stories about the husband and wife team creating a literally and physically unsafe environment for their employees abound. Basically, the two of them were living a purported 1980s cocaine dream, fueled by the millions of dollars they were netting by selling planners and spiral notebooks to seven-year-olds. Is there no more better symbol for American capitalism than these bright and bubbly and colorful visions of a childhood fever dream being sold throughout the country to the delight and happiness of our nation's children, but all fueled and created by this secret cabal of toxicity and abuse and ugliness? It's the American dream, baby. Yep. This is proto-Verhoeven's toupee. This is just Verhoeven. 
You know, it you you need to you need to unleash the we're gonna make literally billions of dollars off of selling paper. You got to start there so that over forty years it can grow to democracy has eroded and people are running through the streets indiscriminately murdering one another. But then selling footage of themselves murdering to TV programs and becoming rich and famous off of it. Yep, it all starts with selling reams of paper with huge-eyed leopards on them. And then life took a turn for the Frank Green household. They got pregnant, and they had two children, Hunter and Forrest. If you didn't know, Hunter and Forrest were actually named after characters from early Lisa Frank products. Two tigers, to be specific. Yeah, that's right. She named her children after her characters. Andrew, I expect you to name J.J. Arms the third Hillsmer Price. 100%. It's going to happen. If you if you don't name your next child Hillsmer Price, both Hillsmer and I will never talk to you again. I mean, I'm not worried about it. Good, but I am a little bit because if you don't, it'll be such a breach in our friendship. I don't know that our relationship will recover. You got nothing to worry about. Good. I'm glad because right now I can hear Hillsmer watching Planet of the Apes in the other room. And we both know what he does when he watches Planet of the Apes. I try not to think and about it. After giving birth to Forrest, Frank decides that she wants to take a step back at the business. Or at least that's the public story. She relinquished control of the company to James Green. She wanted to be home with the kids, supposedly. And here's where things at the Lisa Frank offices go into overdrive. Green becomes wildly abusive. He came up with nicknames for all of the employees because he didn't want to remember their names. One woman, who he thought was unattractive, he went on to call that guy repeatedly for months. He was known for throwing chairs, screaming at people, and breaking things. No women in the office were allowed to wear high heels because he didn't want them to be taller than him. He installed secret recording devices so that he could tape phone calls of employees looking for reasons to be upset with them. The warehouse slash office building began to be called the Rainbow Gulag. During a lawsuit, which we'll get to later, multiple Lisa Frank Incorporated employees gave testimonials, a small selection of which included individuals giving eyewitness statements that outline James Green fired an employee for talking to their father on the phone. James Green physically locked employees in a warehouse because the day before one of them had left 10 minutes early like straight up chained the door and numerous others green's enforcer in all of this was a woman named ronda roulette rowlet rowlet yeah it's got to be ronda roulette which is an enforcer from the lisa frank world i think it's rowlet i choose to headcanon it as ronda roulette also what are the odds that those were weaponized impregnations that it definitely he, occurred to me as well. Yeah, that it he definitely occurred that to me. he was like, because obviously he's like a very controlling guy and a lot of controlling men, especially, you know, in years previous have, you know, have been known to be like, oh, like you're not going to work. You know, it, it, you're going to stay at home and with the kids and stuff like that. So what are the odds that he was just like, oh, yeah, like I've ingratiated myself. I've married this woman. Now all I have to do is get her pregnant and have her have kids. And then I can and then I can take over the company and make her stay home because she needs to take care of the children. And, you know, to him, it's not really a high risk situation because he gets to be at work all day. He doesn't have to take care of the kids. So it's not really doesn't really affect him too much. A bonus scenario. Maybe he likes one. Yeah, maybe I'll get a assistant to do all the work for me out of this. Forrest, get in there and draw another unicorn on a star cloud, <laughs> you little bastard. Ronda Rowlett, 
she was his enforcer. She was a bully. They both worked in tandem to propagate an atmosphere of hostility. Can you guess what they both loved to do in their free time, Andrew? They surfed on the back of the powdered unicorn. <laughs> a unicorn named Powder is 100% something that would be in a Lisa Frank universe. Mm-hmm. And also and in a Lisa Frank nose. Yes. And absolutely, that is true. Drugs, specifically cocaine, even more specifically. One employee every week was sent with an unmarked bag to a gas station where they would exchange that package for an unmarked package. I wonder what could be in there. This same employee was habitually sent to purchase Viagra and porn for Green. And here's where we get the craziest thing about Lisa Frank. I don't think it's real, but it's a piece of the story that people love to say is real. There was a secret letter that proved all of this. It was hidden on the back of a piece of artwork and housed in the Lisa Frank vault, which is a real thing. She had a fireproof vault that housed all of her original artwork and copies of all of the products. And the corpses of the artists who all actually drew it. The letter is from a friend, and it details wild nights of debauchery and drug use with Frank, specifically freebasing. Is it real? I don't know. Probably not. But it's a fun bit to this story. Higher, baby. Get higher, baby. Get higher, baby. And don't ever come back. Lisa Frank. Green runs Lisa Frank for close to a decade, all throughout the 1980s and early 1990s. And then something happens. What exactly? No one knows for sure. But something broke, and Lisa Frank was over James Green. She wanted him out. She wanted her company back. What caused this reversal? Could it have been that James Green and Ronda Rowlett were having an affair? I'm putting it all on black. Act 3. A courtroom drama where Lisa Frank is the only human and the rest of the cast are Muppets. Just to be clear, just to recap what we just was just said, all the stuff we've been talking about, the fact that this company was run by this tyrannical, misogynistic, probable sexual deviant, because otherwise, why would you have a female employee go get you porn unless it was some kind of weird power play, cocaine addict, and all this abuse and trauma and toxicity was going on. This wasn't like in the later years of like once Lisa Frank went downhill This was all happening during when you were running around the mall, scooping up all of your backpacks and notebooks and folders. This was whenever you specifically out there listening to this, when you were doing back to school shopping and getting all of your three ring binders, this was happening. It's dark. When Dave's sister was causing her dad to get arrested (laughs) on kidnapping charges, this was happening. In September of 2005, Lisa Frank filed for divorce. This sparked an internal power struggle at LFI. James had been the primary head of the company for close to a decade, and as such, had sway with the people who managed to stay employed in the notoriously toxic place of work. Threatening to start his own company, threatening to walk out with all the employees, and threatening to transfer all of the contracts he had secured for LFI and transferring them to his own enterprise were all thrown about. Their screaming matches intensified, It was a full-blown war, and whoever won 
would walk away with an empire composed of rainbow-colored neon animals. And finally, after one night where things went too far, Lisa filed a restraining order against Green. He was removed from the company, and can you guess who went with him? Rhonda, and Rhonda's secretary. Lisa Frank went and petitioned to form a new board of directors in order to remove Green loyalists from the company. Ultimately, she was largely successful, and she was able to fully wrest control of her company away from Green and his supporters. Hello, then, Green. Meet my new board of directors. A pink koala holding a little lollipop. A chimpanzee wearing a diaper. A baby lion cub with a bib on. And James Grant. He, he's, a, he's an angel investor that scooped him up from Black & Decker. And then the real trouble began. Multiple lawsuits spun up. Green sued Frank. Frank sued Green. Employees were dragged into the mess. It was awful. But ultimately, Lisa Frank emerged. Maybe not quite fully victorious, but she emerged and she still owned the company. However, things started to go downhill. Either her business acumen had subsided, or she just didn't have the know-how after giving Green full control of the business for over a decade. So what did she do? She opted to begin licensing out LFI designs and schematics to other manufacturing companies. This would keep her name and brand products out in the world, but she wouldn't have to manage the day-to-day -day operations nearly as much. LFI partnered with a manufacturer named CSS Industries. The plan was they were going to start producing products with LFI's designs, and LFI would get paid large percentages of the earnings, like millions of dollars. Lisa signed the paperwork, sat back, and waited for the millions to start rolling in. And they did, but there were significantly fewer millions than the contract had promised. So what did she do? She filed a lawsuit against CSS for breach of contract and lack of royalties paid. She got that old Lonnie Johnson deal. Yep. Ultimately, she was paid money, but just nowhere near what the initial contract had estimated. Was this because of her? I don't know. Before Lisa Frank knew it, her factory on Lisa Frank Avenue in South Tucson was almost empty. No hustling and bustling teams of workers shipping out boxes. No truckloads of product. Just six employees. Six. And Dave's entire family. Down from over 300 at one point. The empty factory served as a monolith to her past accomplishments, and a stark reminder of her current failures. And then, eventually, as you would assume, Lisa Frank Industries closed down the warehouse and fully transitioned into a licensing company. The building was put up for sale, and still is its sun-weathered and dusty exterior standing in the South Tucson heat. So, what are Lisa and James up to now? Andrew, if you had to guess, what would you think Lisa Frank and James Green are doing right now? If I had to guess, I would say that Lisa Frank has gotten really deep into some kind of vaguely culty healing and spirituality and James Green is living off of the settlement money from throwing himself in front of a mail truck. Good guesses. <laughs> Good guesses on both accounts. Lisa still does artistic projects every now and then. She recently put up a pop-up art show where she came under fire for stealing its entire aesthetic and design from a well-known Instagram influencer. How do you get in trouble for stealing an aesthetic when you have one of the most iconic aesthetics Ever. It's really weird, too, because it's not even just like the color scheme of the apartment, which so the, the, the shtick is like she took over an apartment and redesigned it in air quotes and like put up like 
drapes and, and books that were color coordinated and a, a neon pink table and a blue refrigerator and all of these different things. And um, it literally is just stolen from an Instagram influencer. And the funny thing is, Lisa Frank follows that influencer and commented on a bunch of that woman's posts prior to doing this art show, which just rips it off one to one. And then the influencer woman was like, uh, excuse me, you just ripped off my entire apartment that I live in, that I've put all this money into, you know, cultivating this cult of personality and designing the interior of this apartment to make it like reflect me. And you just stole it. You know how she responded? Uh, she blocked the person and then just uh, stopped going on Instagram. But to be fair, the comments that she did leave on the posts were her saying, hey, I'm going to use your exact apartment for a pop-up show. If you agree, don't say anything. <laughs> uh, you know, And Lisa Frank pops up again here and there. She's had some notable other kerfuffles where she did a Kickstarter campaign that went sideways. And I guess they also, Lisa Frank around that time also did a collaboration with Friends, the show Wait, Friends. Fr- friends? Yeah, friends, the sh- Friends? The show Friends, where it's like, let me pull this up. I'm, I'm trying to get like a bigger sized image of it. Give me a larger sized image. So weird. There's like no higher res images of this. It's it's a shirt that is just a picture of Ross and Rachel from Friends, like dancing. And then it just says Friends, like it has the Friends logo. And then above that, it says Lisa Frank. And then it's just got some like Lisa Frank, like hearts on it. And then like little aliens. It's a weird as fuck idea for a t-shirt it like it's like makes no sense it's literally just the lisa frank logo little lisa frank alien characters some flowers and then ross and rachel but i guess also so they did this limited time run of these shirts and they cost 45 dollars and I guess apparently when they shipped out all the people who got them started reporting or saying that They smelled terrible and they just faded after you washed them. And like the image just went away. Like they were just horribly produced shirts. And oh man. And instead of like addressing the problem and like processing refunds or customer service dealing with it and getting back to people, they just went radio silent on the internet and just disappeared. Sounds about right. I mean, that that's in line with how shady they are with everything else. I'm surprised they didn't come smelling of cocaine, you know, <laughs> like they were just made of cocaine. That's, yeah, that's you, why they you, faded you, in the wash. Sh- it's like, wait, these you, shirts, you, you these guys shirts are not meant to be worn. They're meant to be snorted. You guys washed those. You're not supposed to wash them. You're supposed to inhale them. Yeah. What the fuck are you doing? Why did why did you think they cost forty five dollars? <laughs> the reason that the DPI is so small on those images is because the shirts are actually this big. They're the size of a dime bag. <laughs> They're just a little. It's like a gram of cocaine shaped yeah. shaped into a shirt. Yeah. <laughs> that little factoid was uh, suggested to us by listener Ashley Laura, who knew we were doing this episode and suggested we also talk about that little line of cocaine. Thanks, Ashley. Thanks for hanging out with us in the group, being a part of all the stupid shit that we do in the Facebook group. Uh, I'm looking forward to all of the cocaine jokes that are going to come from this episode in the same way that all of the insane clown posse jokes came from the Chris Hansen. There was some good there was some good Chris Hansen ICP riffs in the group. I think I think the group has become a juggalo group (laughs) after after the (laughs) after episode three of Chris Hansen. We've awakened a large contingency of our listeners who are or previously were juggalos. (laughs) But you know what they say, 
Turtles are no fucking guy. That is what they say. That's that's always what they say, and it's always true. If you want, if you want to join the group, you can join on Facebook. It's the Deep Cuts Podcast Group. We talk about episodes after the fact with with the listeners in the group, and we uh, we have a fun time and. Uh, sometimes we discover new things that we could almost like do a new whole new episode about. So if you want to come hang out with us, you should. Let's move on, though, to James Green, because James Green, on the other hand, has a slightly more garish lifestyle. Uh, James Green has converted from Judaism to Christianity, and he runs an apparel and poetry company named Christian Man. It's so good. Ultimate kayfabe. Kayfabe. This one's going to be a full four stars. It's so good. It's so good. Andrew, before we go check out this website, will you just read this text that has been taken from the masthead of Christian Mann's website? It's my calling and my cross. Copyright. The artistic ministry of James Christian Men. So he's Christian, but he has he has a Jewish last name. The artistic ministry of James Christian Men, copyright, is a calling from God. The ministry is called to magnify the Lord. If he was a real Christian, he'd know that you can't write the name of God. You have to put the little dash where the O is. To bring strength, wisdom, humility, and charity through a language that has been bestowed upon me in a time of great trial in my life. After 25 years of creating art for the world, I find myself a stranger, denying myself, taking up my cross, creating art for the word of God, for God our Father, for Jesus my Savior, my refuge and strength, for you and for the encouragement of many others. So this is all weird kayfabe doublespeak for I did a shitload of cocaine, fucked my second in command, left my wife, lost millions of dollars, married my second in command, Rhonda, then started this company with her, and then we both hard reboot rebranded as Christians in order to escape any scrutiny for our prior actions. Yep. Amazing. And by Let's go to this website. And by take up my cross, I mean that little cross necklace that Sarah Michelle Geller had in Cruel Intentions that had cocaine in it. I've got one of those right now. Oh, yeah. I'm wearing it as we speak. Mm-hmm. Oh God! What? <laughs> what? It's no. It no longer exists. No, it's not. It's not. It, it exists, but it's. It doesn't. It doesn't have a security certificate. So it's telling me that like this is a shady website that I shouldn't go to. <laughs> uh, I have to enter my password to go to this website. I have to oh assure. My God. I have to assure my computer like it's okay. I'm not going to get a virus. Oh, man. So the, 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 f- wow, the years haven't been kind to old dirty, uh, James A. Green. Dirty with a capital D. Yeah. It's all very rustic, faux weathered, uh, apparel. And the, the two photos are he and presumably Rhonda, I guess. I don't actually know what she looks like. And then he and one of his sons, uh, both wearing the shirts. And, Boy, oh boy, you can just see that he's lost in his eyes. Look at those eyes. They're like shark's eyes. Yep. Christian very, man is Very called... similar to the look that your sister had in that store in the in the 90s. Very similar. Christian man is called to magnify the Lord, to bring strength, humility, and charity through his artistic ministry is the big artistic... First of all... Faux weathered. 
text. Literally, what is this Christian man thing? Like, is he Christian man or is that like he's a character? He's Christian man, bro. He, no, he's Christian man. He's like a superhero and his power is making shitty screen printed shirts. What does it say above that? A fool for Christ's sake? Yes. Oh my God. That's his like, like, it's like his, his. These shirts oh, are man. terrible. They're so bad. Are, dude. This is something King can, Jesus. You, King Jesus. You could throw this up on Redbubble in like two seconds. Oh God, I love it. And he's getting he's getting no models other than himself and his son. And his son. I love it. <laughs> I love it. Just taking on his phone. Why is there a copyright phone? logo in front of Salvation? Jesus Jesus is who he says he is, and Jesus does what he says he does. Copyright Salvation. A fuel a fool for Christ's sake. What the fuck does that mean, bro? <laughs> What the fuck does that mean? Is he, is he trying to copyright the concept of salvation? I don't know. Or is he trying to copyright the quote? James A. Green, you are so shady, my dude. And what does a this fool so for weird. Christ's sake mean? It's on all the images. It's like it's like there's like multiple. There's like two different conflicting brandings because there's Christian man, but then every image says a fool for Christ's sake with a little picture of like a a jester. And like, what is that? I don't know, man. But I'm really excited about it and really into it. I think we should. We are this. living in the last days. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's so good. It's so good. I love that he doesn't smile in any of the photos either. He's just like sternly staring into camera. Like, Dave, like look at the, the, that is, photo on the top he right. Where he's wearing a shirt unhappy. that says Lamb of God. That looks like a fucking like wanted photo. Like, that's the photo that flashes on the news where it says former cocaine addict and former head of Lisa Frank Industries, James E. Green, is currently on the run on I-5. Also, apparently, a large fan of the early 2000s heavy metal band Lamb of God. How much you want to bet that guy doesn't even know Lamb of God is a band? He definitely doesn't. Images, like, some of the images, like, just don't load. Yeah. Go to go to uh, testimonials. What are, what are the testimonials? Are those things that he's pretending other people have written about him? My suffering has led to my salvation. Oh, copyright yeah, salvation. It's here. It is. This is him, the man, the myth, the legend in the flesh. This James is a green. This is all there is. It's just one image of him wearing a shirt. You go to you go to testimonial, and it's a picture of him with the text that says, "My suffering has led to my salvation." That's it. that's it. That's it. Dude, scholarships? Scroll down. There's scholarships? Oh, what the fuck is that? I'm about to get me a scholarship right now. <laughs> oh, I can't open the... Safari can't open the page. It's a dead link. So there foundation. Is, is Christian Man a foundation? Christian Man Foundation cares for homeless and sick children. I don't believe you. James Christian Man... Wait, hold on. Graham, James Christian Man Foundation was inspired by Jesus Christ's special love for children and the fire that burns in my own heart for children. So it's both third person and first person. Crossover James episode Christian- with the Chrissy Hand Hands. <laughs> Dude, Christian Man, uh, James Christian Man Foundation gives priority caring for homeless, orphaned, or sick children. The other priority of my foundation is to help young Christian men and women in gaining the education they need to use the gifts of God, the gifts that God gave them to glorify him. Some of the organizations to which James Christian Men Foundation has contributed or continues to contribute includes 
faith oh my god so many typos include well, i guess i can't throw a stone my scripts are filled with typos uh includes faith-based you are deeply religious as well and you did a lot of cocaine in the 80s it's true it's true uh organizations providing homes to abused or abandoned children or housing and food to hundreds of homeless children or homeless parents with children other recipients include Candle Lighters Childhood Cancer Foundation of Southern Arizona. The foundation sponsors an annual summer camp and contributes to proms and Christmas parties each year for children with cancer and their families. Also, the Palmer Home for Children, St. Vincent de Paul, St. Patrick, uh, St. Baldrick's Youth of their Youth on Their Own. Um, Oh my God, it's just like a list of charities. He, he's not partnered with these. These are just like things he's given $5 to once. If that. he Yeah, he's given he's given like $5 to each of these things so that he can claim that their their foundation donates to them. This is so bullshit. This is so bullshit. And is, all three images at the bottom of this are just blank. There is no way that screen printing like crappy generic like l- words onto shirts is making enough money as a business that he's donating tons of money to f- charities. I wonder if he's on Facebook. He's a ministry. He looks so uncap and unhappy in every photo. Oh shit, bro! <laughs> he's friends. He has with- a fucking Facebook he's page. Friends with Jerry Album. He has a Facebook page for the company. Um, it was created July thirtieth, twenty twelve. And um, it, you want to guess how many likes it has? Just guess. Just guess how many likes it has. 14. This motherfucker has 107,000 likes. 107,000 likes. 107,793 likes, to be precise. Oh, my God. Listen to this. Listen, they, uh, this is a video he posted, and the the caption says... You say, I'm rich, I have acquired wealth and loads of money and need to do nothing, but you do not know and realize you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked, dash Jesus. And it's just a, it's just a video of him filming his own shirt while walking on a beach somewhere. And there's dollar signs behind a skull is the design. What's and the- it says, blame James across the blindfold on the skull. What's the Facebook page called? James Christianman, all one word. All one word? All one word. His last post, his last post was on June 21st. Uh, the Bible says in Revelations, evil men do not understand judgment. Instead of repenting, the people will lash out against God. And it's just like a protest sign guy, photo of a protest sign. Today we struggle against those who would tear down everything our ancestors built in the name of Marxist utopianism. And it's a it's an old slave owner. It's an old slave owner statue. What the fuck? I kind of want to try and interview him. I feel like he would probably talk to us. This oh is god, so weird dude. This guy sucks. Cardiac arrest up eight hundred percent. Six hundred plus doctors warn lockdowns doing much more damage than COVID. Oh my god. Revelations speak sucks. of a time that once the seal is open, one fourth of the population will die. They will die not from the plague, but from the aftermath of a plague. The beast of the earth may be referring to the bats. Oh my god. Oh my god. And now he's he's promoting weird Bill Gates conspiracy theories. This dude is so off his rocker. RFID chip may be tied to new coronavirus vaccine. 
The mark of the beast is coming. Yeah, this this guy is full QAnon. Yep. Hoping Jesus Christ will be a part of your Christmas and that these days remind you that the hope, joy, love, and peace can be found in him. Have a blessed Christmas, everyone. That's a photo of him, Rhonda, and his son, all with weird, vacant smiles. Also, whichever one of his sons this is, Hunter or Forrest, uh, he looks like a cast member on Jersey Shore. He definitely does. He's wow. literally, I mean, this is he, so weird. he literally, this whole thing is just a kayfabe fear mongering to sell his t-shirts. Yep. He's like, his, his, his Facebook page is, is just alternating between advertisements for his t-shirts and then like doomsday, like end of times, like the rapture is going to happen any day now. And it's just like scaring people into needing to buy his shirts. Yeah, it's so weird. It's so weird. I did. I I can honestly say I did not see that twist coming. I I didn't see that angle coming into this. Yeah, <laughs> that the I the mean, person who ran Lisa Frank for ten years was going to be a COVID truther, doomsday cultist. Well, he is. Frank, on the other hand, makes very seldom public appearances. She's only appeared in two videos that were shot in the last 10 years. One is an Urban Outfitters mini documentary. I'm Lisa Frank, and for everyone who wants to know if I do exist, I do exist. I'm a real person. What do Lisa Frank and Andrew WK have in common? I don't know, Andrew. What do they have in common? They constantly have to reassure everybody that they are real. It's true. Hearts, music notes, teddy bears, unicorn stars, color, fantasy, jewels, glints, everything to, you know, that makes a kid happy, smile. When I was little, I was totally a girly girl. And I was a huge colorer, huge. To keep me quiet, they brought the coloring books and the crayons, and I used to fill up the books, then they'd have to buy me another one. I'm crazy. I'm like, <laughs> I'm a lunatic. <laughs> I mean, you, we have to stop me and say, okay, it's enough, because one illustration gets hundreds of hours in it. It's really you know, kind of madness. In the beginning, um, computers weren't where they are today, and so we used um, acrylic paint and an airbrush to paint everything. In our offices, we have a vault. It's a fireproof vault where we keep a copy of every product that we've ever made, and also the original artwork that we did before computer. So these are the original pieces of artwork before computer. This was like 79 or 80. I also remember this one. It's really incredible how the colors are still all so bright. It's really incredible how I had nothing to do with this artwork. This is the first time I'm seeing this. I've always been obsessed with candy. <laughs> And color. I think probably the best thing about being Lisa Frank is to be able to make kids happy. Unfortunately, I'm still a kid. <laughs> you know, I mean, I love all this fun stuff. Unfortunately, I'm still a kid. Literally. the That thing that happened to Tom Hanks and Big happened to me, except for I never figured out how to change back. And I've just been a child inside of an adult's body. But like, 
your mind doesn't actually grow. You just stay because you're, you're like in a magical limbo. So your mind stays as a 10 year old child as your body ages. So I've just been a 10 year old kid with my body just decaying, but unable to mature enough to cope with it. In closing, what's the moral of this cocaine fueled <laughs> tale? <laughs> I don't but, know, man. I didn't have any. I didn't have anything to add to that bit, so I was like, "Fuck it, moving on." Also, i i watched a I, I watched a video of somebody reacting to that video, and they were kind of talking about some of the controversies as well. I guess I think it was like a BuzzFeed article that had come out that was kind of documenting all of the employee testimonials and accusations, and they were kind of talking about that a little bit. But they were they were kind of like obviously a fan of Lisa Frank, and they had all kinds of Lisa Frank stuff. They were kind of talking about the controversies and they were being realistic about it. They were being critical of it, but they were talking about that video. And despite all the criticisms that she was kind of being realistic about and kind of actually addressing in a critical way, the part in that video specifically where she's like, I'm just a, I'm still a little kid or whatever, or I, I love, I, I'm a kid at heart. I love this stuff, which she said in that video. And she also said it in the other video, the CNN video from back in the early nineties. She was kind of talking about that and she was saying like, she's clearly, you know, she's like a, she's like a carefree, like childlike spirit. And she was obviously taken advantage by this guy because she's, she's just so childlike and, you know, just full of wonderment and she cares about making children happy. And I just thought that was so interesting and so funny. You know, this person wasn't being delusional about the realities of the situation, except for in that one specific detail, she took this statement at face value that Lisa Frank is like this kid in a adult's body and she always has been because that that's so fake that's not real at all that's completely a character that whole thing is just a made up character like she is not like that whenever the cameras are off she's not like that in private i mean she might be kind of like loopy and kind of all over the place like that that doesn't necessarily seem fake but the whole thing about like, I'm a, I'm a little kid and I love colors and candy. That's not real at all. In closing, what's the moral of this cocaine-fueled tale of abuse, ambition, and artistic pursuit? Well, if anything, it seems like it's a testimonial to raw willpower and what it can accomplish when you are willing to do just about anything. Propelling yourself into a globally recognized brand is imminently doable, apparently, as long as you're willing to crush anyone who gets in your way or gives you anything less than 100% of their ability. And then the real question becomes, was this the goal all along? Just to crush people? Was the artwork just a sledgehammer that was used to build a permission structure to allow weaker people into their orbit? Everyone puts up with shit from their boss. Very few people put up with being chained into their offices. And yet, Lisa Frank and James Green lured people in, and for albeit brief amounts of time, lorded over these fiefdoms of people. It's ironic that the work of Lisa Frank and James A. Green is known for being associated with innocence and a magical world that never quite existed. Because in many ways, Lisa Frank's warehouse out in South Tucson was a literal manifestation of that. It just so happened that their joint delusion of what makes something magical has more in common with an autocratic dictator than a quiet artist. I don't know, man. It's all it's all really fascinating to me and very sad at the same time. The the um the kind of duet that these two people were doing in this kind of like atonal key of abuse is very fascinating um and it's also interesting to me that they were both like 
I mean, I'm, I don't want to speak for James A. Green because he appears to have artistic skill and uh, ambitions since, you know, obviously I don't like what he makes, but he makes he's made stuff after Lisa Frank. And it's you can't deny that it's very James A. Greeny. Um, but and, uh, you know, obviously he got hired at Lisa Frank as a designer initially. Um, but the the fact that both of these people have like weird, dubious connections to the actual production of art and yet, especially Lisa Frank is just credited as the art. Like, I don't think people know that she doesn't draw them anymore. You know what I mean? Like, I don't think that's even a thing that exists. Or that, like, I, I, did she ever? Like, that's the thing yeah, that I just keep, I keep, yeah. I keep wondering about because it's just there's no reference to it at all. And it kind of, the way she talks about the artwork kind of reminds me of those, like, propaganda videos from Tony Wong. Where you're just like, totally. you're just like, I don't think this person knows what drawing is no yeah completely absolutely i uh i kind of love the fact that they did this though like i love the i love the it's like a fucking martin scorsese movie set inside the worlds of folders and gel pens that's so weird and it happened in my hometown which is so strange yeah it does if it does feel like a martin scorsese movie and also it's just like lisa frank is like the rainbow glitter Charles Foster Kane. Yeah, yeah, totally. But yeah, I, I, I keep going back to that thing that I brought up in the very beginning of this idea of this weird middle ground between this idea we talk about of the person who is doggedly obsessed with their vision and sacrifices everything to accomplish it. And it seems like there's like, there's at least the kayfabe shade of that here of just this idea and it, it, whether or not that's completely fabricated to just craft into the narrative that she's obsessed with perfection. I don't know, but there's like that. But then there's also this other like grifter snake oil salesman element. I started out selling reselling pottery and then I just realized I could make more money off of it if there was pictures on it. And it's like just those two things, they don't sit in the saddle together for me. And I, it's really, it, 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 it kind of throws me off, right? I kind of, and you know, I guess that's kind of the whole theme of this and maybe by design and maybe exactly how she wants it. But I just, I can't wrap my mind around like figuring out Lisa Frank. Like I feel like I usually can with all of our subjects. I really just don't get her. Yeah. I, I love the, um, the intensity behind her, both in her public persona and all of this other stuff, though. Like, I, I love the, the kind of manicness to it all, both in like just the way the artwork is produced, the visuals in the artwork, this horrible working conditions. Like, it's so fascinating to me that the idea, like we were talking, like I started out the script with, you know, can you have great work without having to pay that Pied Piper at some point, you know, without the the cost of the human toll. Um, and I, it's, it's fascinating to me. I, I don't know the answer to that. You know, an, another example that I've talked about previously is um, uh, Werner Herzog. You know, he went into the jungle and made a movie about a rubber baron who wanted to take a ship over a mountain. Fox wanted to do it. And they were like, yeah, that sounds great. Let's do it on the back lot here in Hollywood. And he was like, we will not accept plastic solutions. We will go to the Amazon and we will move this two-ton ferry boat over the mountains and we will beat back nature with our fists. Like, Except for she was like, we will only accept 
plastic solutions and glitter solutions and rainbow unicorn solutions. <laughs> I'm Lisa Franken, and we're having a guest Instagram takeover by Werner Herzog. Werner, what do you think about our amazing new gel pens? I believe that the coalescence of the gel wiping across the paper is like the negative space that we all have deep within ourselves. In many ways, we are all filled with our own gel and we are the pins and our lives are the writing of the gel onto the rainbow bright three ring binder paper. Sometimes I stare into the mirror at night and I think to myself, if only I could achieve the blind sublimity of rage that exists within Hunter the Baby tiger's face. But I mean, there's, uh, there's, <laughs> I there's a bunch of examples. I listen of to the recording of Hunter the Baby Tiger eating Lisa Frank, and I refuse to let anybody in the public hear it because it is too disturbing. Only I should hear it. Like, I, I love... <laughs> I love this. Um, but I, I mean, there's lots of people that, you know, like another, another example that a lot of people talk about is, is Ridley Scott. He typically asks a lot of people on his productions. He's a perfectionist and, and, you know, in shooting Blade Runner, they piped in charcoal smoke for the atmosphere haze in, you know, the future city LA. And it fucked up a lot of people. They were like coughing up black soot and people had health problems and like, you know, the, the crew walked off the set at one point and there were all these issues and you know that movie is all about vibe and and atmosphere and and energy and it yeah sure it's a noir movie set in a sci-fi universe and that's fine like but that's not what people come to Blade Runner for they come there for the ambiance and the visuals and that doesn't that's not captured unless there is that person who's doggedly pursuing a vision I'm not necessarily saying that everyone should be fucking poisoned to make a movie. I don't think that's probably a good idea. But I think that it, there is something to be said for when people are chasing something, it yields a specific result. And you can feel that both uh, James A. Green and Lisa Frank have chased various things at various points. And it's very interesting to see those data points collide to me. Yeah. 40 crew members died on the set of season four of Bacon and Legs. And that was totally worth it. It's the best season of the whole show. And on that note, I'm Dave Baker. And I am Andrew Price. This has been Deep Cuts. You can find me on the internet at heydavebaker.com, where you can find comics like my coming-of-age romance skater comic, Fuck Off Squad, or my surrealist, weird action-adventure comic, Action Hospital, on the site. Andrew, where can people find you on the internet? You can find me floating in a neon-colored glitter realm, riding atop a magical rainbow dolphin and shooting beams of candy energy out into the stratosphere where it ricochets off of cotton candy lions and leopards made out of scrunchies and... You can also find me at dapricerights.com where you can buy my book, Deadbolt, AI Private Eye.
Deep Cuts is a production by Boy Genius Media. If you'd like to find this show and others like it, please visit boygeniusmedia.com or deepcutspod.com. If you want to join in on post-episode discussions, please join the Deep Cuts Podcast Facebook group. Finally, subscribe to our YouTube channel for additional video content. The incidental music for this episode was created by D. Catalano, whose music can be found at wekeepoddhours.bandcamp.com and Dad Beats. You can listen to his podcast, Food Fight, a food discussion podcast, anywhere you get your podcasts. And the Dead Boy Detectives, who... Oh,